All right, we're on the record. Um, so yes, yeah, so we have questions prepared, but we just want, um, I was wondering if you just wanted to start by introducing yourself. Yeah, yeah, I can introduce myself. So can you can you catch me? <laughs> okay. No, we'll do that. Oh yeah, it's catching. Um, so I'm State Senator Robert Peters of the 13th District. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll do my short spiel and then go from there. So uh, I was born and raised here in the district. Uh, born deaf with a speech impediment. Um, my biological mom was addicted to drugs and alcohol. This is 1985, mm-hmm. uh, when Ronald Reagan was uh, president. I was forced into adoption, adopted by a civil rights lawyer for a father, a social worker for a mom. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, that's why I grew up in the area so much. My dad did a lot of work at the Mandel Legal Clinic, uh, and my mom uh, was a social worker and came out of SSA. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't fully able to hear until I was six, fully able to speak until I was 12. Um, I went to raise school. Part of the reason why I was able to even get by in life was because of my school, because of the park, uh, because of neighbors who had their doors open. My adopted mother suffered from a lot of mental health issues. Um, you know, she was an alcoholic at the same time. Uh, sometimes I didn't feel like I could go home. Um, but it's because I had that sense of community. And if we look over the last 30 years, um, we've seen mass isolation, uh, breakdown of community, uh, breakdown of what it means uh, to live together and to work together. Um, And I became an organizer. uh, And as an organizer, I organized with the People's Lobby and Reclaim Chicago. First campaign I worked on was getting big money out of politics. Um, and let me tell you, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a tough one. Um, then uh, the minimum minimum wage increase in suburban Cook, uh, and then uh, the bond reform uh, that happened at uh, in Cook County helped create the coalition to end money bond. I I became a state senator um, about a year ago. In that time, as state senator, I was able to pass thirteen bills, four around DCFS, three around the criminal justice system and the first ever ban on private immigrant detention centers in the country. Um, and now as I head into my second year here, I've become committee, I become chair of the Special Committee on Public Safety, uh, where I'm gonna particularly focus on pre-trial reforms. Uh, so going from an era where nobody thought ending cash bail would happen to we are on a good path, um, and hopefully this year we can end cash bail. Um, and I can help play a leading role inside the legislature, um, getting that done. That's a passion project of mine. Um, and that's, yeah, that's who I am. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Thanks so we appreciate it. Um, okay, so uh, I guess we have questions on some of what you said as well. But first, I sort of wanted to ask about affordable housing, which is a big topic in your district, um, but also statewide, um, especially with the, um, now we no longer have a ban on rent control. Um, what legislation are you looking to pass, or what do you think of state rent control measures? Well, we ha- we haven't necessarily passed a bill to lift the ban on rent control. Oh, sorry, we have the we, people buy expensive support for it. It's um, I think it's something that we need to do. Mm-hmm. I still think it's more of a short term solution to housing. I think it's a uh, it's something that's needed, but I think we need to combine that uh, in terms of more affordable housing. We were able to pass in the capital bill about two hundred million dollars in affordable housing. I'll pause. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much.
we were able to pass, get $200 million to go to affordable housing in capital. But I think there's pieces to the homes guarantee that people, people action, people's action are working on that if we can see if we can get them done at a state level. So social housing, subsidized housing, um, you know, there's sort of a battle, uh, but at least it's a good start. And the fact that the vacant lots were taken off the market by the city. Um, and I think it's now figuring out what type of housing goes on those vacant lots. The, you know, when we talk about markets and housing, um, the market is set by the investor as much as anything. Um, so if you put luxury apartments somewhere, then you've set the market to luxury apartments. It's not, you know, we can get into a larger conversation about markets and all that stuff, but it's not some sort of mythical, mystical thing that exists out there. Um, people literally can set that tone if they want to. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done specifically in the state in terms of funding affordable housing, but also at the city level. Um, you know, there's, when we think about the role CHA plays, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot here. There's also pushing at the federal level to allow people to actually build uh, like real federally subsidized social housing, um, which was made illegal um, by a bill a few years ago. Um, so I think there's just a series of things that can be done at city, state, and federal level that has to happen to deal with the fact that housing has become, and real estate has become essentially a, a new investment tool, you know, where um, I always say after the Great Recession, you know, the term banks got bailed out, but we got sold out, really means that black homeowners took the brunt of the bank bailout. Um, you know, they landed the plane on black homeowners. It was the one of the greatest or largest uh, sort of erasure of black wealth. Um, and now when we look at it, 64% of all wealth is in real estate. Um, so it's essentially become a place where people have stored or stockpiled their wealth um, and has such a strong tie to investment firms through the power of rents. So. And so one of the things that we're specifically interested in regarding um, rent control and housing concerns is obviously the Obama Presidential Center is set to arrive here sometime next year. Um, while we're not sure about the timeline about that, we'd like to hear very much your thoughts on how um, any concerns that you have about it or, you know, plans that you have to, to work with the, the center and the, um, the foundation. Um, well, I mean, yeah. so it's now kind of in city hands because mm -hmm. the state already did a thing about it. Mm -hmm. I do think that, uh, you know, Jeanette and Leslie uh, have a CBA ordinance. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are risks um, to, like, the center itself is great, right? Like, it, it, the idea of having a presidential center and a library mm -hmm. is great. The risk of having sort of vultures seeking an opportunity for investment mm -hmm. is something that's scary and worrisome. Mm-hmm. It is important that um, whatever comes out of the uh, Obama Center is very clearly designed to help out the community around it. Mm -hmm. I think that fight around the CBA ordinance is an important fight, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's, it, again, it's important. It's great to have a, a presidential center. I was just thinking about Robert Caro and uh, his books on LBJ are almost all designed because of LBJ's library. They all come out of LBJ's library. He sits there for hours going through them. 
they're digitized now, but for Obama, but um, that's actually a really good, useful tool for anybody who wants to study the first black president. That is amazing. There's a lot of history there, um, but we have to make sure that everyone is able to benefit from it. Um, and I don't, I don't see why that should be a problem. Um, especially again, if we're looking at the fact that 64% of all wealth is in real estate. Shifting gears a bit to talk about your other largest constituent, uh, how do you see your relationship to the University of Chicago? Uh, we have some specific things that we'd like to talk about, but I guess we can start with talking about the University of Chicago as a developer in the neighborhood. Um, they just bought up Jewel on 61st, and how do you see your relationship in your next term? Yeah, I mean, I it's um, like anybody who's a Hyde Parker, uh, there's always this sort of give and take relationship to the University of Chicago. Um, one in which it, it is the largest employer in the neighborhood. Not necessarily the district, there's, you know, there's also the hospital system, but at least locally, um, a lot of people who work for the University of Chicago have concerns about the University of Chicago. It's just sort of part of having the U of C here. Um, it has a history of, um, you know, that dates back to urban renewal. Uh, that again is a lot of sort, of sort of contradictory sort of feelings in which the fact that some of, you know, I grew up in a, the IM Pay or IM Pay inspired house, uh, which was a product of urban renewal on 55th street, right? It's a very weird sort of contradictory relationship. Um, I think that Part of the, yeah, the, the part about the, it, it as a real estate and a developer is um, that's part of why you have to have some sort of sense of accountability, um, why uh, a CBA does matter, um, why we need to think about the history that goes back to the Woodlawn Pact, uh, you know, the idea that they weren't allowed in Woodlawn, I don't know if people... Which they've now broken yes, and what? broke our, my first year. Yeah, but the history of it... First is important. Um, I mean, they, they broke it. It, it happened. We, we're not going to reinstate the Woodlawn Pact. Um, but it's important that we actually have some organized power to say, your role now is we have to watch out and watch you. I, my bigger concern isn't necessarily the development. It's the use of police that comes before you have development. Um, you, you tend to bring in policing, develop, then say, use the police to sweep away people and push them out. So I think it's very important that we start creating some accountability around the role of police as they expand. The, the territories have always sort of, you know, the last 20 years they've expanded out to the extent now that they'll be more um, militant is a thing that we need to be careful with. Um, I know on campus there are a lot of folks doing the Care Not Cops organizing. Um, you know, I think this is, again, about how do we hold uh, police force and private police force accountable. And I think that ties into the development piece. They're going to use it as, you know, a force to go into developing neighborhoods. So. Do you, what sorts of things do you see um, yourself doing as a state senator specifically related to, um, you know, the, I'm sure you heard that Charles Thomas, a student here, was shot uh, 
uh, now two years ago um, with that. And, you know, that ties into your concerns about police mm-hmm. and brutality specifically as funded by the University of Chicago. What sort of interaction do you see yourself as a state senator if you um, have a second term? Yeah, uh, so I'm going to introduce a bill um, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of redefines first responder due to the situation that happened in Charles Thomas mm-hmm. and due to the situation that happened in Woodlawn. And I can't remember uh, that person's name, but... Yeah, okay. he, you know, the the police killed him during a suicidal and having a bipolar tra- traumatic experience. Um, to make it so that a first responder is not necessarily just a police or firefighter or even ambulatory, mm-hmm. but a mental health professional. Um, Charles Thomas was bashing windows because he was going through a traumatic experience, and the first person that should have came to talk to him should have been someone who knew how to talk to calm them down from that traumatic experience. Um, then there's the work, there's community members and folks on campus, and I think they need to work together around police accountability. Um, and, you know, that's complicated, but I think it's something that can happen. Um, you know, we have to look at what's happening in John Hopkins and how they have police accountability for the John Hopkins police force. Mm-hmm. That might be a model. Um to deal with, you know, University of Chicago and to be honest with you, any private police force that exists. Um, and I've met with both folks on campus and folks off campus about these issues. Um, you know, I think the, there's, it's so fascinating about this because, you know, I know a lot of the nurses, a lot of the doctors at um, UChicago Hospital. It is an asset in the community. It's really important, it's great. Um, it, it could be actually strengthened if we look at safety measures around mental health in a very different way mm-hmm. because it can play a role in sort of redefining its relationship to people going through trauma. Um, and, you know, that's outside of even the trauma center issues. I mean, trauma center, the reason why trauma center exists is because of specifically violence, but redefining trauma even beyond that I think is what's important. Also, I mean, let's be honest, this is, this is a campus that has SSA on, you know, here, you know, one of the preeminent social work schools. When we're talking about sort of redefining what a first responder is around social work, it would, there's nothing better than having SSA students being able to learn that and become experts of that. There's just benefits to the university um, that just don't necessarily make a lot of money, uh, but would get it a name, right? How many students, especially because if we start down the path of also making it so that people coming out of social work look like the communities they're working in, um, this is a place that should actually be in the lead on that, not following. So, I guess a couple of questions off of that. Um, one is, or you said you've met with people on and off campus. Um, I guess what has your experience been working with people more higher up administration as someone from the community, but a politician? Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I'm have pretty much an open-door person, and I'm pretty honest with people when I talk to them. So even if it's someone, you know, from pretty you know high up and they come talk to me, I'll be pretty honest with them about the history of the university, especially because some people come and they actually don't know the university's history as well as I do, and I don't mean that in a negative way. They come from another state or another area, uh, and I'm just like, yeah, you know, I, I just ask them blunt questions. I, you know, I think it's important to have the relationship. I have no problem having a relationship. You know, uh, UChicago Medicine will come talk to me about an issue. I'll say, okay, let me look into it. 
we negotiate it, we go from there. I think it's just kind of how I deal with everybody. Um, if it's someone from the community, same thing. Um, if it seems good, I'm going to be supportive of it. If it's not, I'm going to say it's not good. And that's just how I am. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I actually like talking to a lot of folks. I mean, I've met uh, Bob Zimmer. It was, you know, I felt for a second like, oh, you know, I was like, am I a frog in this place? Should I be here? You know, um, especially because I'm so close to UCSA uh, and I did a lot of organizing on campus. And four years ago, um, for Kim Fox and Bernie, we, we took over the what's now the 57th Street Wine Shop. It's empty. We made it a storefront for the campaign for GOTV um, with the people who organized at UCSA. And uh, But I met with Bob Zimmer and I was like, you know, I'm willing to have you talk to him. I'm gonna be honest. It's up. It's not. It is not. It's on someone else to be. You know, I'm gonna use this language to be the asshole to me. That is, I'm gonna be who I am, and you know, you may like it, you may not like it, um, but at least I'm gonna be honest, and you're not gonna get any bullshit. And so, I think people like that. Too many times you go meet with a politician and you ask them for something or they talk to him about something, they kind of bullshit, and then you don't know if you actually got an answer. Um, then you don't know what you're getting out of it. One of the worst things that happens in politics is you go meet, have you guys done a lobby day in Springfield? No, I have. Okay, good, because you all should definitely do that to be writing about this right now. You should make a trip to Springfield and see that and feel, I think everybody should, especially in the district, they should see what Springfield's like. But you meet with a politician, sometimes they'll just not give you a clear answer. Um, and then you have a sheet and you mark down like where they're at when you lobby them. If you don't know what their answer is, that means you're going to keep going back to them. And then you're spending all your time trying to go back to someone because they didn't give you a clear answer. It can be very difficult for lobbying. So having someone who says, here's where I'm at, here's where I'm not at, here's where I need to see done, makes it a lot easier. And, and, and people appreciate that. Because they'd rather know that you're a clear no or a clear yes or you have these problems than have to guess. So when it comes to university, it's the same way. They talk to me about you know medicaid and what's happening with you know the hospital and i'm like i totally understand you know i'll joke and say i mean i feel like these issues would be much you know much easier if we had that thing called medicare for all which i can only do so much about but um at the same time i understand the issues that go on for how much you have to do uh care for people and you know i think that's yeah that's just sort of how i go about it Speaking of public health, um, we were wondering, um, since the city just finished such a big um, kind of pipe restoration project, um, if you could speak to uh, any kind of movement that you would seek on the lead um, service level lines, um, or the lead service lines uh, that are still um, in Chicago, and if you're planning to do anything about that. It, I mean, my focus is I'm going to introduce a bill that I introduced last year and I'm trying to bring back, which is really around parks. Um, and that's just lead testing. Uh, right now, we don't have an actual formal process to mandate lead testing in parks. Um, so that's, that's been my focus, is if you're gonna take your kid to a park, you should know if they're drinking the water, if it has lead or not. Um, we passed a huge capital bill. I think we need to get this done. We could, you know, CJA is not there yet. We'll see what comes out of the working group around CJA, the Clean Energy Jobs Act. Um, if it becomes a larger jobs package or not, might. My guess is no, but I think it's a place to have a conversation about water mm -hmm. uh, because we have two parts of water that are bad. 
the lakefront is erosion combined with our piping issue and infrastructure. Uh, but we also did pass a giant capital bill. Uh, so we have money to deal with this. I don't think we should stack this on a homeowner um, for these pipes. Um, but my focus has been on the fact that we, we have these parks where uh, there could be lead. You know, Nicholas Park had a famous incident a couple years ago around lead. And now you just have to keep the water on, which is just ridiculous. But we should have a formal way of at least testing it. Because once you start testing it, you mandate testing. Well, then you know every park that has a lead issue. And then you have a different conversation about what we need to do about that. And so, of course, the state park districts might not be the biggest fan of that. I think they should be. You know, my statement to the, some of the folks is, do you take your kids to a park? You know, and they say, yeah. And I was like, wouldn't you want to know that you're they're drinking the water that they're drinking good water mm -hmm. um but you know who am i common sense things like not wanting to drink blood you know mm -hmm. so they answer the question yeah. Yeah. yeah um can you talk a little bit more about CJ? yeah the clean energy jobs act um is really a unique opportunity it's not specifically the green new deal but i think it's sort of like a good barometer for the national fight on climate change and climate justice because if we do this right we can expand community solar we can transition uh, union labor jobs to uh, climate justice uh, we can move away uh, from fossil fuels um, and we can invest in communities that just have been hardest hit by climate change and they, they could get jobs as well as um, renewable energy. So it, it literally combines so many fights um, that I think used to, you know, when it was the environmental movement, it had a sort of um, granola-y feel where now we're talking about climate justice, we could talk about race, uh, class, um, and kind of dig deeper on that. There's, you know, the other part about this is CJA can open up opportunities about conversations around housing because if we do community solar, some of the best ways to do that is if we make housing and that housing that we as the people have built has community solar attached to it instead of hoping that someone does it and maybe they do it in their own standard or their own way or it's only limited. We can play, it's the reason why um, the sort of national fight around the Green New Deal around public housing is so big because you can essentially take the, the two, you know, clean renewable energy and clean jobs and housing and housing and development, developing jobs like, you know, labor and put them together and provide people with housing, jobs and uh, renewable energy. But that, that's really a big national fight because again, we are limit, we're not allowed to build um, public housing because of the, you know, racist errors of the 1950s. Um, but I think the idea is if we do this right, uh, and we don't do it like the 1950s, um, we can have social housing that I think, I think any one of us could live in a place that looks like Vienna any day. Um, and we deserve that. So, but that's, again, that part of that fight is not one I can, I can only push so I gotta emphasize that part. You know, creating v Viennese style social housing is great, 
but that, that's an Austrian policy. Um, so. And I guess continuing our, our discussion of clean infrastructure, there's been a couple different pushes in the district to expand mass transit. There's the uh, project right now about lowering fares and transfers mm -hmm. on the two metro lines. There's been some people arguing for expanding the green line. What does your transportation agenda look like? I think the metro CTA thing should happen. Uh, reducing fares on metro, uh, increasing ridership, uh, getting more people to see why they should invest in public transportation is, I think, important. Um, I, I, you know, I can't believe, you know, New York subway is a mess, but I like riding the New York subway because it takes you anywhere in New York. There's a benefit to that. I think that would be a dream, you know. So let's start getting people to see why they should, why. The way we do public transportation is just inherently the access for someone is just so limited if you live on the south side and west side, but especially on the south side, especially along the lakefront. Opening the idea of getting on a metro and knowing that's cheaper than it currently is because it's tied to the CTA fare and it's subsidized sounds great. Uh, and I think more people would use it. I think more people would go to the stop over by 71st Street if they knew that they didn't have to pay so much money to get on it. And most likely with the increase of ridership will benefit CTA because if people feel like they should take Metro and they take it all the time, they feel comfortable with it, they're gonna be like, well, I'll take the bus here, I'll do this here. For the short period of time, you might lose ridership on CTA. The, the longer period of time, um, you'll end up increasing the sort of relationship to a public good that needs investment and support. Um, I guess with that, where do you see the state's role versus what the city of Chicago should do in subsidizing fares? Well, it's honestly actually city and county. Um, the state does some stuff, but th this this project is a county subsidized project for CTA Metro. Okay. The county's essentially doing it, but we in the state need to support it. Our best way of supporting it, at least in the last year, um, was the capital bill. So now we've put all this capital in there. You can have stops look nicer, cleaner, um, people can feel safer um, because we've had so much disinvestment that we've had capital disinvestment. You go inside of some metro stops compared to some metro stops in other parts of town, why you don't feel like this is a place, this is not built for you. Um, so we should make it so it's built for people on the south side. Um, and they got a lot of capital money to do that. So I guess kind of moving to criminal justice for now, um, this is, yeah, your issue. Um, I guess after, beyond cash bail, what do you think the top priorities for criminal justice work in the state should be? Oh, well, well I mean, I've become so singularly focused on ending cash <laughs> bail that it's hard because um, that's like uh, my baby. But sentencing reform is something that is, you know, going to come up. Um, I visited Stateville Prison now for maybe five times. Um, and you know, you hear folks in there, there's two things that they want, sentencing reform and parole. Parole is a longer term fight, but sentencing reform and ending truth in sentencing is something that we can get done. Most people don't understand is many of these laws are state and local based. The federal government's job can do to subsidize reform. So if you have someone's really good at the federal government talking about it, that means A, they can change the narrative around criminal justice and public safety. And B, we can start saying, okay, the federal government's gonna move more money into public defender's offices, 
um, so that people have more public defenders and they have more time and they have light, lighter caseloads. We can put more money in social services. We can put more money into healthcare and housing. And these are all safety issues. The other one we can do is we can put more money in to drive down truth in sentencing issues, to drive down DOC population. So you can look at it, the way I look at it is, the fight is what is someone's life before they hit the justice system, what's someone's life within the justice system, and what's someone's life coming out of the justice system, and what systems are we put in place to prevent people from going to the justice system, what systems are we doing to get people out of the justice system, and what are we doing when they come out? And, you know, this, we can get to really a deep, deep bit on all of this, but I also think it's, I don't like to say the term criminal justice reform. I prefer to talk about safety uh, and public safety. I think we cede to the right what it means to be a public safety champion. Um, you know, I, I think I'm a fucking public safety champion. Um, I don't know who, who's, what, criminal justice reform is great and dandy, but I, I think people want safety. Why, that's what I'm talking about. Um, and I don't know why, you know, Lee Atwater got to own that issue when he created a Willie Horton ad. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that from him. It's ridiculous. And I think, you know, that's why I'm, you know, taking the chair of being on this committee about public safety and why it's named public safety is because it's going to be a place to have a conversation and to invite people who've been working around safety um, to have a space to start doing the work to reimagine and win real safety. Yeah. And we're going to have a hearing on this Thursday at the Balandic at 10 a.m. So. so. And speaking of issues that um, sometimes land people in the prison system, uh, what are your thoughts on um, expungement um, or, you know, sentencing changes um, post-legalization of marijuana? I think, so, yeah. We should, I mean, we have expungement. I think we can even expand expungement. Um, I think we proactive sentencing um, is something that we should... Anything that gets more people out of prison, I think, is a great move. Um, and that just needs to happen. But most of the people who are locked up aren't locked up because of, of cannabis. Mm-hmm. The, what we have, nonviolent offenses is actually a very small amount of our Department of Corrections population. Quote, unquote, violence. And just so you know, the way we apply the word violence is extremely broad. Mm-hmm. It is extremely broad. It's overly broad. Um, we, if we want to address public safety... We have to move beyond the binary of the last 30 years and how we talk about this. So I think it's, I think it's great that we need to go after in terms of past cannabis, you know, uh, incarceration. But we often you saw with someone's cannabis, you know, um, sentence was, also they would be sentenced to something harsher next to it and then something harsher. They stacked on the charges around cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, we have this ridiculous definition called a UUW, unlawful use of a weapon that most of us don't actually know what, what that what that means it sounds bad but people don't realize how broadly that can be applied we need to change how we talk about that because if you had a UUW and you had cannabis they knew that they would stack these charges and then you would make a plea because you have too many charges you have too many charges on you you'll be sentenced to a longer sentence and they'll say oh well you get 15 years if you just you know out here you know you're stuck with life right now so I think to me it's um it's hitting that but knowing that we 
if we really want to get people out of prison and back into life, is that we have to have, um, we, we have to look at things beyond the sort of binary in terms of policies. And I think the idea is that there's no easy, there's no easy strategy to tough challenges that we need, um, we need to not allow politicians who just want to have easy answers on something and take the risks. Um, also, you, I'm never going to be seen as a disciple of Lee, Lee Atwater or um, Bull Connor or Nixon or Reagan or any of that. I think it's just, yeah, I think most people at the end of the day, um, they just want to feel safe. And a lot of people have told people, oh, this tough on crime thing is going to make you feel safe. And yet after 30 years, nobody feels safe. So it tells you that the 30 years of policies that have happened aren't working. People don't feel safe. And the reason they don't feel safe is because we're not actually addressing the root causes and issues and systemic issues that are happening in people's lives. And therefore, that's why they don't feel safe. If you don't feel like you get your Social Security check might go away, you're going to feel like you're in an unsafe situation. If you lose a grocery store, you're going to feel unsafe. If your school was closed, you're going to feel unsafe. Simply putting up a closed caption television on a corner doesn't actually address that person's fear of safety. It makes them feel for a second that someone might be watching. But at the end of the day, they still feel unsafe and they need to be watched. It's not really dealing with that root cause. And it's, it, yeah, to me, it's, it gets me, obviously it gets me mad and frustrated. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, in changing how offenses like UW are prosecuted, do you see your role more as like supporting reformist states attorneys like King Fox, or is it is there like a policy role? Both. Both. Okay. You know, um, when a lot of us worked to get Kim Fox elected. Mm-hmm. We created a uh, state attorney accountability team, um, and so we would meet every quarter with Kim to talk about what was happening in the state attorney's office. The thing is that if you have um, a reformist or progressive prosecutor. Um, even though there are limits to that, we can go down a deeper path of what that means. If they will be helpful for when you're doing fights in the city and in the state level. So with Kim Fox, with Chesa Boudin, Larry Krasner, Rachel Rollins, we have a set of prosecutors who come from sort of progressive spaces and want to push the boundaries when it comes to progressive policies because they can see that they're spending more time having uh, to prosecute people who should just not be in the justice system this is actually a horrible use of resources that could be used better to actually deal with people and their trauma and what they're going through. You know, um, and I, that movement is, yeah, it's an amazing movement. So I think we need both. Um, if I'm pushing to end cash bond and I have someone come in there and they're a prosecutor and they decide to rail against it, that hurts the policy. But if I have someone get in there and they say, this is actually what we need because it's not actually, the currently cash bond doesn't do anything to talk about safety. It just wealth-based attention. It makes it easier for me to move that in, in the capital. I think our last question on the subject, uh, Vermont and Maine are currently the only states that allow incarcerated people to vote. Is that I'm supportive of it. At? The only way we can actually, sorry. Uh, yes, um, so I was talking to Chicago Votes about this bill. Uh, they gave it to someone else because uh, I said, we, you know, we have to do a constitutional amendment first. I'm very close to them. They, they, I was like, so I, they gave me a bill to end prison slave labor so people get paid. They get paid like, thir- you know, 30 cents to do, you know, tough work. 
But I was like, yeah, I don't know if we can carry this bill yet because it's a constitutional amendment. So in order for us to end, um, to enfranchise folks in prison, we need to pass a constitutional amendment. I was like, I don't know if I can do that now. And my good friends gave the bill to someone else. And I said, come on, why don't you let me know? So I'm a big <laughs> proponent. Um, reason being is because if you're incarcerated and you're able to vote, your treatment inside of the prison improves exponentially because people know there's an accountability there. There's also a sense of that you're, you're now an enfranchised human with a right. Um, and so I think that needs to happen for sure. Do we want to go on to education, taxes? Sounds good, yeah. Which one? Okay. Um, well, what do you think um, your role is as a state senator in, you've spoken about your own experiences, um, in, you know, paying for college and having to leave um, a credit early. Um, so what do you think your role is, um, you know, in, in state government uh, in making the cost of education in Illinois, specifically higher education, more affordable? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple routes here. In the short term, we just need to make it very affordable. Um, we saw a bunch of bonuses go to U of I folks, on, you know, who are getting paid an extreme amount of money. Um, Brad Underwood, who's the coach there, gets paid a lot of money. Lovey Smith gets paid a lot of money. Um, and at the same time, uh, college in Illinois is extremely expensive. And if you play football, your coach gets paid this much money, but you now risk getting CTE and get paid jack shit. You get paid nothing. And then they say, well, you got a scholarship. And if I, that, the power dynamic between you putting your body on the line and them saying, oh, you got a scholarship, and the coach and the AD is problematic. So I think we need to make college more affordable. I think that needs to happen. Um, so that, that, that's especially public college, obviously. So, um, and then longer term, I, I think it should just be an extension of what high school was 100 years ago. It should be free to have public college. I think the idea is like, you should know that you can just, how many people, how many, I think for you all especially, but as part of an earlier generation in which we were told this, you've got to go to college. I mean, it's like so important that you go to college. You go to college, you come out of college, you're going to get this great job. Oh, it's going to be great. You have to go to college and get this great job. And then it was like, you got to go to college and then you got to get your master's and then you get a great job. You got to go get your master's and then you get this great job. But we want to tell you this, you got to go do this. And then when you do this, uh, it's going to be extremely expensive, and then you're going to get a lot of debt, and then you might not actually get that great of a job. That's a that's ridiculous. If you're going to tell people they need to go to get to a, do a thing to get a job and thing, then you should make that thing like you, we talked about high school. It should be free. That's a lar much longer term, bigger fight. But at least in Illinois, we can make it far more affordable and put our priorities in both our directional schools and our public schools and our you know and our. our Directional state schools and our, uh, you know, sort of hub campus of U of I and Illinois State and UIC, it's sort of more affordable and accessible to people. Because again, you know, here you all are, I'm guessing you all want to be journalists. Uh, and it, no? Well, it's a range. Range? range yeah. Okay, because if um, you look. I'm going to law school, which is a lot of debt. You're going to law school? To be a lawyer? Yeah. Okay, as long as you're going to law school to be a lawyer. Don't just go to law school because other people tell people to go to law school and then you go to law school and it's only supposed to be some sort of, you know, way to step up the ladder and then it turns out you did all that and you're then you watch someone. Debt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got that from my sister. She said that to me. Um, but the idea is like, so we see 
journalism being attacked by consolidation of the marketplace and what that's doing. Um, look at what's happening with the you know folks over at the Tribune, um, with people in the CT Guild just having to take buyouts yesterday, and you know that was tough to watch. And I told folks at the Tribune, I was like, sometimes I agree with you, sometimes I disagree with your stories, but you are people who are doing work. You're part of a guild, and here you are watching this happen. I mean, this is, yeah, it's great. It's great. It's great. Do you think that there's um, a legislative role to play um, that you would be a part of in reducing the cost of higher education? Yeah, I mean, the governor is going to introduce some stuff around this, uh, and I'm intrigued to see what happens. Gazzari introduced about three years ago, maybe, a free college for all in the state bill. Um, I'll see what the governor wants to do. He's committed to making this happen. Um, but I, I don't know if it's something I'm going to necessarily lead, considering mm-hmm. that I'm taking out a lot of uh, criminal justice stuff. You sound busy. Um, I guess going to like primary and secondary education, um, two sort of questions. One is um, unions are a huge part of your platform, so um, I guess what you think the role is with supporting CTU and other teachers unions um, and then also what are your thoughts on mandatory pre-k oh wow um, so yeah two different questions two very different <laughs> questions um, I think that wherever there's a workplace and there are people working they should have a union and a collective bargaining and that's very important because at the end of the day I'm not even talking about the issues of uh, prevailing wage or the you know minimum wage increase, living wages increase, benefits, pensions, all that stuff. At the end of the day, what it's really about is the power dynamic uh, in your workplace. You've got to have a balance of that that power dynamic. Now we can go further than that, but I think just on the most basic piece here, it's about power. If you're a teacher, you have giant class sizes. Uh, it's been to be a teacher has been something that was under attack for fifteen years. Um, so I think what CTU is doing and how it's set a model for the rest of the country is something that is just... And the fact that what it shows is that if you're, especially if you're a public sector union, you interact or you are affected by what's happening in the rest of the world. And so if you, you are some of the best people to speak up about seeing sort of the mirror reflections of some of the worst things happening in the world and how it impacts your life and the life of the people you have to deal with. This is the same whether it's social workers or... It's a nurse or it's a teacher. It's a, it, you, you, you're interacting with some real crap in the world and you become some of the most important people speaking out against it. Um, so, and then not only that, it can impact you because maybe your kid is in a class or maybe you have a kid who's been impacted by it. Like, There's just so many different layers in which you're impacted by it. So I think that's important. Universal pre-K. Um, I haven't actually really thought so much about universal pre-K. Uh, I thought about universal home care and child care, and I thought about um, how we do universal sort of end of life care. Um, so to be very honest with you, I haven't thought too much about universal pre-K. Uh, I think at, at the end of the day, as long as a kid is being taken care of and it's in a sense of community, that's very important, um, and that needs to happen. One thing at the sort of circling back to environmental issues, there's been a bit of a push at the municipal level to talk about uh, municipalizing ComEd for Chicago. 
Is that something you're interested in? And what other ways do you see both the city and the state acting to decarbonize our energy supply? Well, so I think, um, so yeah, the uh, municipalizing ComEd is, I can see why it's really good. And so I like the idea. My only fear is so much of our grid is coming from nuclear power plants outside of Chicago. And um, I know the folks who are doing democratized ComEd work and I just would like to know how we, how city prevents capital flight mm-hmm. or capital strike around energy. Um, considering that, that so much of the grid is tied to outside of Chicago. Um, I do think um, as, a, as a state, we can expand community solar, wind, and be creative and actually using the lakefront as in a very creative way it would make sense to then start democratizing that energy. But, I, and I, you know, I don't think the democratized comment people are gonna be like, Robert, you're crazy. But I think if, if anything, it's it's more about at a city level, maybe at a state level, it's something to look at. Comment and Exxon, I'm not doing anyone any favors right now, uh, just on all around, not even on the energy level, on the political front. Um, so there's no better time, uh, but, there's already a big fight around CJA and them that has to be figured out, but you, you got to prevent the risk of a capital flight specifically around energy because what would, you would become delid. The worst thing that could happen is so you democratize it and the rate goes up because the provider of the energy just decides to do that. Um, so either the grid shuts down or it becomes too expensive. And so then you have a situation that happened in New York in the late 70s. Um, and if you're the person who is- issued this, you'd become delegitimized amongst the people and you're not prepared to handle that situation. And that allows for someone to come in and say, see, these crazy people didn't know what they're doing. And I think as much as I believe in those principles, I think there needs to be steps because that risk happened. We saw it in the late 70s in New York. It was very bad. Um, and led to, um, was it Mayor Koch, Coach, Koch, yeah. yeah, who rose to sort of power on that, um, which ultimately led to someone who became like the opposite of the capital strike mayor, and Giuliani, who became their like, you know, the police chief of the rich and powerful in New York, um, essentially as mayor. And, you know, he, he, in his great sort of thing that he talked about was how he changed Times Square you know, which was, he basically used, you know, the bully club and beat people out of Times Square and did not have any plan for what should happen to them. Um, so I just, that's my, my biggest fear is if we're going to take on, if we take these things on, there's a struggle between how much a local and a state entity can do it. And if you're going to do it, are you, is it in the position where you are going to be able to mitigate against some of those fears? So again, it's why I don't believe um, there are like, free college is something that we can maybe get to, but we also have to have so many other housing now is so huge. We might not have the ability to handle that investment just yet. So we, we have to figure out what's our targets to get there. We still, we still have to make sure we get some progressive taxation, both at the income tax level, the closure of corporate tax loopholes, you know, reduce sort of uh, the amount we give away to 
companies that don't actually provide that many jobs to begin with. So I, I just, to me, these are the sort of things that have to be wrestled with. Um, so I like, again, I like the ambition. It's just that fear that goes into, and I think I, I you know, I get I a lot of feelings about it because I think I'm right in that fear because we're almost completely powered outside of, I mean, maybe if Cook County, if there's a deal cut with Cook County and like the sort of Collar County area, but yeah. I guess a question on taxation. Um, I, we're nearing the end here, but. Um, I'm just ranting. <laughs> so. Ranting is good. We like renting. Uh-huh. But uh, you've, you have expressed a lot of support for the more progressive income tax that Pritzker wants, but also um, you do oppose like taxing the retirement incomes of yes. very wealthy. I was hoping you could say more about that. Um, so the way I feel it would work is if you tax retirement income and you say it's a graduated tax retirement income. Now we know the power dynamic in the state and how we have regressive taxes. Mm-hmm. So now you open up taxing retirement income and then it starts going it doesn't just do the wealthy. Then it becomes everyone's retirement income. And then it becomes a situation where people who have a lower amount of retirement income are going to pay more than people who have more. I don't think you should open that door. The first thing we need to start thinking about is first let's get uh, the fair tax. Let's close some corporate tax loopholes. One of them is the offshore tax loophole. Supposedly anywhere to $300, $400 million. Why aren't we pursuing that instead of opening the door to taxing retirement income? And saying, oh, we're only going to do it to the rich and the wealthy. Over 100000 No, I mean, my feeling is that look at how we many sales taxes we do. We're just going to open that door for someone to come in to start going after everybody. I, I'd rather focus our fight on a way where we, you know, corporate tax loopholes don't impact the poor like they do those who have it. So. One thing I did want to ask, um, you're a very popular state senator, um, but your opponent, I guess, in kind of framing this election has made this about, I guess, your big push and, like, policy um, goals on, like, ending money in politics um, are, like, come in contradiction with, I guess, you are taking donations from corporations. So I was wondering if you wanted to address that. Yeah, so the harsh reality is, and first of all, I get most of my money from labor. That's, don't, corporation like... Getting a $300 check from somebody is, is, it's basically they're just giving it. And I'm saying to myself, if you want to give me the money, even though I'm not going to be on your side, then that's, that's your problem. Uh, most of my money is labor, often public sector labor. Um, so like, again, my biggest checks are going to be mostly labor checks. Um, my thinking about this is, we, it is to get small dollar donations at a state senate level is really hard. It requires really building that up. We've done three grassroots fundraisers, I think 100 people each. We're trying to create a program where people give $20 a month, but that requires a lot of work. And when you don't have that big of a name recognition, it it's really hard to do. I want to get away from having to take anything that could be giant money, anything that is like that. But the reality is I have to first build that up to move away from that. My opponent went around and told a bunch of committeemen and aldermen that he was going to raise $300,000. If he's upset about anything, it's because he didn't raise $300,000. <laughs> he, he, this is not like he's running on some principled thing. And, you know, I'm, I've never worked at some big law firm. And he, I think it's pretty clear my politics. You know, I proudly endorse 
Bernie Sanders. I work very closely with the Sanders campaign. Um, if we're going to make a stand about money in politics, it can't just be a talking point for an election. It's got to require actual effort. The way I see myself organizing to make that happen is, you know, we first, as we're building up the campaign, the campaign infrastructure brings people in. We then have volunteers and leaders. Those leaders' jobs are to start communicating to people, hey, can you give five, ten, fifteen dollars to this campaign? Become part of it. They take on more leadership, and then we use texting to try to bring more people in. This is a long-term project to bring up more sustainable um, fundraising and to move it so that it's not that when we fundraise and we build this up, that whether I'm in the seat or not, that the organization that's happened and that's built up survives. So I come from, you know, Reclaim, TPL, United Working Families. The idea is if something were to happen to me, whether it's by election or life, you know, my dad died at 63, something bad happens to me, that the people who've organized in this district are not only committed to doing it, they're actually building that fundraising base so it keeps going. That's the goal, and that's what I hope to see happen. That'd be a dream. Because what the problem is we oftentimes have politicians who just take money, and then that's it. They don't care. There's no organizing mechanism behind it. Um, so, yeah. If, if we're going to do things about talking points, you should maybe back them up with history. But, you know, yeah. Sort of, I think our last question. Um, you are active, or you um, brought the bill banning private immigration detention centers. Um, so an immigration-related question. Um, in 2017, California passed a law that prevents any state or local like law enforcement from acting on behalf of ICE. Um, should Illinois do that, or do you think that's viable? We have a mixed thing. So we got rid of deputizing. That was a state bill that got done. Um, that doesn't mean it necessarily applies to CBD. I just I truly believe we should abolish ICE. So um, yes, I think. The, ICE is disgusting, and it's the brainchild of Dick Cheney, um, and I don't want anything associated with Dick Cheney, so, um, or Paul Wolfowitz, I can't tell, but both, Rumsfeld, let's put them all in there, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Cheney, if it's associated with those three, it's most likely a bad thing, maybe I'm crazy, but, um, yeah, I think that we should not, ICE should just not even, I don't, ICE should not exist, um, like, it's, yeah, ugh. I hope that answers the question. I think that's a very broad, but very specific statement on that issue. Yeah. Okay. You have a question? No, I oh. think she she got it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's I think we're all set. Yeah. Basically, at time. Yes. I'm yes. gonna shut this thing off. Thank you so much.